This episode is part of Season 1 of MesoTV, a program created and produced by the Mesothelioma Applied Research Foundation. We thank the following sponsors for their support of our organization and its work. Novacure, Bellick & Fox, LLP, University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, UPMC, Vogelzang Law, and Merrill Lynch. Thank you for the invitation. So first of all, I appreciate this uh, kind offer to be able to talk at this forum. My name is Adnan Jagadar. I'm a surgical oncologist in the thoracic oncology group at the FDA. Um, and I've been asked to talk about, as, uh, um, as you pointed out, Mary, about the compassionate use and more specifically, expanded access program at the FDA. But before I delve into that program, just wanted to kind of bring it into context of why we have such, uh, such programs in place. And specifically for this group with patients with lung cancer and, and also for mesothelioma and how it's relevant to our patients and, and, and uh, treating physicians. So as you know, there's been a considerable amount of scientific development, also clinical progress in terms of therapies in the past decade or so. Even at the FDA for the past decade, we've had about more than 17 approvals for cutting edge therapies that are coming about. And many of them has been on non-small cell lung cancer, but also there's a lot of work in small cell lung cancer and more relevant to this group in mesothelioma. So the question really arises, how we get these therapies to the patients very quickly and expeditiously? And uh, long story, uh, uh, short answer is that basically to have the drugs flow through the pipeline and get it approved, right? So have the therapies undergo uh, very thorough uh, testing with regards to safety and efficacy and then uh, obtain the FDA approval. That would be the best mechanism to do so. And we have been doing that at the FDA along with the uh, companies and uh, other uh, stakeholders to work to get this to the patient very er er uh, expeditiously and urgently. Uh, more importantly, this comes to with regards to investigational agents. So here, of course, uh, the science is rapidly progressing and many of these therapies are also in the pipeline. So patients and also treating physicians reach out to us and wonder, how can we get these investigational therapies that do have some promise uh, based on preclinical and even early clinical data to our patients? And the answer to that is the most beneficial way for the patients with regards to safety and also with regards to benefits to the, the society and, and, and the field is the clinical trials. As you know, it's conducted under rigorous uh, structure as to provide um, safety to the patients, but also the information that is collected is to assess how to benefit the disease process or learn from about the disease process and get it to the uh, patients uh, who are in the future would be in need of this therapy. Nonetheless, and many of us know who have been taking care of patients that patients sometimes don't meet the eligibility criteria for clinical trials. And that could be for various reasons, including maybe the trial is conducted at a different stage of the disease, or the patient may be at a different stage or an advanced stage, may, may just not meet the criteria. It could be comorbidities that patients may have that preclude them from being in the clinical trial. And sometimes it's even logistics, although it's not a main reason to not participate, but sometimes logistics in terms of access to clinical trial centers make it difficult for patients to uh, access this. So uh, I've been asked and others at the FDA and in general have been wondering, how do patients get access to investigational therapies? And today I'd like to highlight a program that actually has been at the FDA for about 30 years. So this is not new, but, mm -hmm. and many of you are familiar with this, is the Expanded Access mm -hmm. Program. That encompasses multiple, multiple uh, ways uh, through which 
uh, patients can get access to investigational therapies. And before I delve into this, I wanted to say this program is truly for those who have exhausted any available therapies. It requires a thorough mm -hmm. conversation between patients and their treating physicians, whether they're eligible for a clinical trial, because that also allows for investigation therapies to be available. And then if those are all kind of not uh, foreseen and the patient's treating physician and the patient agree that an investigational therapy may be needed, even in the context we don't know the direct benefit, uh, these programs are, this particular program that have multiple uh, aspects to it is available. Mm -hmm. And um, I wanted to kind of give a little bit of an overview of what has been this program and, and before you know, we take on questions. So for example, as I mentioned, this has been around for 30 years and people might wonder, oh, you know, this adds another layer of you know, added uh, administrative burden in terms of accessing this program, going through the FDA. Um, as I can, we looked at these numbers over the past you know, decade or so, more than 99, more than 99% of these requests have been uh, uh, granted to patients who are requesting it through their treating physicians. And then in specifically in oncology, we looked at our data recently and we saw that more than 99.9% of these requests are approved. So again, it's not one of those things you, you know, request the FDA for expanded access or compassionate use, and it's just kind of one of those things hit or miss. It's really very, very actively and um, uh, aggressively looked at in terms of whether it's benefiting the patient. Uh, secondly, also um, in terms of timing, um, you know, patients or treating physicians might feel, you know, how do we go about doing this? And I'll go into this in, in the next few minutes of how a person proceeds mm -hmm. to access this. But we've seen if you have an emergent or emergency use for, for an investigational therapy and then it's appropriate for that patient through the treating physician, those are approved within 24 hours. The request comes in, mm -hmm. sometimes even verbal approvals are given over the phone. Uh, when the treatment plan has been assessed. And again, there are components of this process, which I'll go, go into, but these can be done very expeditiously. However, we also looked at what about the non-urgent ones, and those for oncology have been about three to four days. So we're very cognizant about how productive this program has been for the patients who are requesting this, as it's appropriately so. So um, here, I wanna take a quick pause uh, to also say that this program is uh, available only when the uh, manufacturer of, ex, uh, of the investigational agent agrees to provide this to the patient. So that's one of the biggest caveats, though, that the, the treating physician would have to ask the manufacturer for the availability of the treatment. So again, there are mechanisms I'm going to go into how to kind of co coordinate this process. So uh, essentially, uh, the, involving the FDA can help allay or alleviate some of these concerns. First, it adds a level of safety. Safety of our patients paramount, even though there is possible uh, uh, potential benefits we can derive. And uh, in order to do so, the FDA reviewers may have uh, an oversight of the class of the drugs that where the investigational agents belong to, or even confidential information could be used to provide advice not the information itself, but advice to the treating physician how that treatment plant is specifically be, be beneficial or at least safe for the, uh, for the patients. And also sometimes the manufacturers feel having that added layer of FDA assessments in case a safety concern rises or at, at worst, a, a toxicity that develops having this 
layer also helps to kind of allay those concerns in order to have it available for the patients. And I know yourself and others have used this program uh, potentially in the past. Mm -hmm. So again, these are components. And I wanted to kind of say, that, let's say I'm a treating physician today, an oncologist who wants to access this. How do I go about doing this? at the FDA in the next few minutes, just wanted to kind of highlight some aspects of that. Mm -hmm. um, usually it involves a thorough discussion with the patient and, and a consent with the patient whether uh, and a treatment plan involving the investigation agent is needed for that patient based on the safety and, and also the risk benefit profile. Then the uh, treating physician would usually then contact the the manufacturer or the provider of that investigational agent to get their agreement. At this point, this could happen concurrently is reach out to the FDA. It's a very straightforward process. Through an email, usually there's one form that's a two-page form and not going to the mm -hmm. specifics, it's uh, form 3926 and I can forward you the link to the FDA website after we're done with our conversation so those who are interested can do so. Mm -hmm. And um, in there, you, the treating physician highlights what would be the specific curtailed treatment plan for that patient and also the follow-up that would be needed. IRB is also involved, so I didn't want to kind of um, uh, put that aside, but we consider IRBs, the Institutional Review Board, to have boards and specific time commitments. So in order to streamline this process, uh, the FDA in the past few years have also at these type of requests have said you can get uh, one member of the IRB to look at the treatment plans and the request okay. and sign off on it. And if it's an urgent, if, if it's an emergent use of it, those can happen after the uh, allowed to proceed has been paid, so at least within the five days. So it's, it's, you don't have to worry about the uh, paperwork logistics at that time while you're concurrently uh, talking with the IRB or with the FDA. So this can this could facilitate the process. And as I mentioned, uh, for the emergency uses, we've looked at these numbers over a decade. It's been more than, uh, within 24 hours, the review team get back to the, that they get back to the treating physicians to allow to proceed. Then the third component is, of course, the patient's informed consent and uh, awareness of what the risk benefit of this is. Uh, and this is one arm of the expanded access. There are a few other arms. Sometimes our treating physicians may have other patients who may also would require this. So usually more than uh, 10 patients, when they come in through these treatment requests, end up being an intermediate expanded access protocols or mm -hmm. treatment plans. And then one other one is called the treatment protocols or treatment INDs. This is a sponsor who has a drug or a therapy that's actually already been through phase three. They're in process of review in, uh, in the marketing applications. They're, they, they obviously know that it works and provides a benefit. So patient may want access to this therapy even before they hit the market. So sometimes sponsors go ahead and obtain a treatment protocol for those, for those drugs that are about to come into the market to even expedite the access to this for certain patients who may benefit. So these are the different components, but the main one usually involves the treating physicians with their patients requiring for specifically for this. Now, before I move that, in addition to expedite this process that's happening, the Oncology Center of Excellence at the FDA or OCE actually in the past few years has launched a pilot project called Project Facilitate. Project mm -hmm. Facilitate, F-A-C-I-L-I-T-A-T-E. Basically, uh, if you Google this or use any of the search engines, Project Facilitate FDA, it will direct you to an FDA website for the Oncology Center of Excellence for our patients in oncology 
Uh, it's essentially a hotline. It's one-stop shop, which provides a contact email and a phone number where you can call, usually on work days between Monday and Friday from 8 to 4.30 p.m. and get an expert who is at the FDA aware of this whole process and get advice how to navigate this. So the form that I talked about, even sometimes advice on how to navigate through the IRB process if you are a physician practicing in a rural setting, don't have a access to an in-house IRB, how do you, if you can actually have advice to get an external IRB is also is, is, mm -hmm. uh, is appropriate. So this project facilitate and the website, which I'll share with you later on, Mary, Mary is uh, allows us, allows the uh, treating physician to quickly navigate this process. And if there is a, a live person on the end of that phone line can get, actually can give you specific advice. Additionally, uh, there's also guidance how to do the letter of uh, letter of authorization with the manufacturer and how to. Uh, so, you know, as if I'm a treating physician who hasn't done this and I'm not a researcher or in a research institution, we recognize these are uh, hurdles. And so even to make this possible and more uh, accessible to our patients, this particular I want, uh, initiative I wanted to highlight from the Oncology Center of Excellence called Project Facilitate. And, um, and, and members of this uh, staffs who are involved will even have uh, in the schedule to do the follow-up. So call the treating physician, check up on how the patients are doing. So this is not just getting access, but also how the patient are doing. And this is a treatment per se, in, in, in essence. So you know, uh, the follow-up is very crucial. Um, and as I mentioned, um, uh, if there are aspects of it in terms of resources uh, available, uh, this, this particular website also has a short video about uh, a minute and a half of what expanded access, what I've been talking about in the past few minutes or past 10 minutes. Also a 45 minute webinar of details of how this process works. So I wanted to at least give a shout out to that. And uh, before I kind of concluded, I have actually had these uh, talks before where there are some myths that come about. So I've been asked these questions before. Uh, one is uh, uh, physicians ask me, well, I'm not a researcher. I'm not an investigator in a, a clinical trial. Uh, why can I access this expanded access? And as I mentioned, any treating physician with appropriate credentials to treat patients with cancer, so oncologists who want to take care of our patients, the answer is yes. So how do you go about doing that is uh, one would be to reach out to the FDA and also utilizing these resources. So it doesn't have to be a researcher. So I also talk about the cumbersome in terms of the administrative cumbersome aspects of it. So it doesn't have to be the physician who needs to fill out these forms. It could be a regulatory person of the office of that treating physician or of that institution can reach out to the FDA, line all this up. But at the end of the day, it's the treating physician who has to sign off before giving the medication to the patient. And of course, we just talked about the paperwork cumbersome and the administrative aspects of it. We really tried to minimize this, as I said, for emergencies within a day, three to four days for the average, and it's a couple of uh, form, uh, just a form with a couple of pages, and then of course live support. And then we talked about the benefits of that is to add that safety to the patient and allay even concerns to the manufacturer to, avail, to, to give this drug, uh, to these experimental drugs to our patients. So just to conclude, basically, uh, the expanded access program is available, has been around for 30 years, 99% or 99.9% .9 of the time for the oncology drugs that are usually re requests have been granted. Uh, the manufacturer must be willing to provide the product. That's one of the um, 
whether rate limiting or not, that is one of the processes that have to be agreed upon before mm -hmm. this uh, access is, uh, is available. Project Facilitate is a project that is available for the oncology healthcare providers to reach out to the FDA. And then um, I wanted to briefly kind of spend a minute or two, as you mentioned, uh, moving on from here is the right to try uh, the legislatures and uh, um, uh, the procedures that have come in place. As many of you already know, uh, federally and also many states have right to try procedures. FDA is not directly into in uh, uh, into that uh, legislation, so basically it does not impact the FDA, and FDA is not uh, uh, part of that uh, right to try uh, legislature. In my understanding, is that those acts allow the uh, patients to directly obtain the the investigational agent from the manufacturer. But I wanted to highlight whether contrast or con compare or contrast or not. What I wanted to highlight is that the expanded access. Uh, is att attempts to and has successfully in the past done the same to allow appropriately for the right patients who have exhausted all approved therapies, also who are not able to participate in a clinical mm -hmm. trial, the, the same mechanism. And it, it, it adds FDA and the IRB in the process, but recognizing if I were a patient, I want this therapy that is investigational and with the appropriate understanding with my treating physician available to me, the expanded process. It, expanded asset programs allow the same process to be also available and the FDA being involved allows for as I said a layer of safety with regards to confidential information across the various class of medications of that investigational agent also helps allay the concerns manufacturers may have some of the thoughts would be is to if we can promote the clinical trials that should be where the patient should go but we do recognize that this program is necessary and so we're very cognizant of that to get this patient to our patients quickly. Yeah. So with that, uh, I thank you. I spoke uh, for the past uh, few minutes and I'm more than happy to take some questions if there are any or even clarify some issues or concerns or questions that you may have. So thank you very much. Thank you. So I, you know, I do recall when uh, Olympta Premetrexa was first approved in mesothelioma, um, expanded access was, was very important at that time because we were able to include our peritoneal patients who did not have access during the clinical trial. So it was very helpful to the mesothelioma community that this program existed. And if I'm correct, I believe that you also collect data. So in rare diseases, collecting data is so important that you know, when we use the term sort of off-label, off-label doesn't really contribute to a body of knowledge, but going through your program, I believe, would add to the knowledge that we need to obtain in rare diseases. Am, am I correct that there is, you know, that there, this is data-driven as well? Yeah, so just to clarify again for being mm -hmm. very appropriate to the definition, the expanded access mm -hmm. is for a treatment plan. So the, the main purpose mm -hmm. of this is to, uh, if the treating physician feels that mm -hmm. an investigational therapy, which is not approved, so it can be obviously used off-label, uh, is mm -hmm. maybe beneficial to that particular patient. So mm -hmm. in its true form, the purpose of it is to provide that therapy to the patient in the context of safety. But if the information can be collected, um, that is true, but it is definitely not the main purpose of the expanded access program. Mm -hmm. uh, the main reason is because there's a lot of variability, as you can imagine, because in a clinical trial, you know the exact population, the exact uh, dose and everything. 
Here, it's more in the, in the context of practice in terms of the, the therapy that maybe sometimes the doses are curtailed or changed based on the patient's comorbidities. So it's in essence, that's not the primary, primary goal, but concurrently, if that information is assessed and collected, that, that definitely is, you know, it's feasible and it is, is okay. But again, it should be put into the context of the variability to make any claims or anything beyond. But as you said, sometimes um, uh, uh, a therapy that is already in the market or actually is about to come on the market, and in that situation, sponsors who are very aware of the nuances of their therapy in terms of dosing and, and who and mm -hmm. modification, they actually go out there and, and, and also request treatment protocols and INDs, so it would be more available to a broader patients, usually more than 100 or so. Uh, and, and that time, we already know how this drug behaves in a larger population, so it's much more feasible. But the, the, the data component would be there, but it's not the prime uh, reason for this. It's essentially for the patients and the treating physicians to get a therapy that they think may be beneficial outside of the context of the clinical trial. Thank you. So you also mentioned it's kind of like a very high percentage of these uh, of these approvals take place to the FDA. Is there any data or anything that's uh, been published about uh, the pharmaceutical response to these requests? Do we know how often they go through? Um, is there a percentage? Um, any information that's that's out there that's been looked at? Yeah, I'm sure. I just didn't want to give you a number off the top, but the, the, the numbers that I looked at, of course, uh, the FDA being a federal agency, the GAO mm -hmm. looks at this information uh, on, a, on, a, on its uh, routine uh, assessment. So uh, recently that report has come out, and based on that, uh, they were very uh, interested in how those who would like to access the expanded access uh, program are able to do so. Now, one caveat to that is that if you look at the 99.9% that I've talked about in oncology, mm -hmm. uh, that involves a patient wanting a therapy, and then of course, reaching out to the manufacturer who has agreed to provide that therapy, and, and in that case, those scenarios that have been given uh, allowed to proceed in that situation. So you can put that indirectly into context. But as far as the of course, it depends on each manufacturer, how large or small. In biologics world, it may not be as big as, you know, in, in, the, in the therapies that have drugs or other components to it. Mm -hmm. So again, I do not have a specific number, but, you know, I'm sure if you reach out to the sponsors, they may be able to uh, share. And then other times, we do get reports uh, um, in terms of when we get the annual reports from manufacturers, what their clinical study updates are in terms of safety and their activities. They also summarize the expanded access programs that they have in place, uh, especially both uh, companies as also investigators summarize the, a number of these pro uh, treatment plans and protocols that they have in place. So we do have uh, information on a yearly basis. And part of the regula regulations have been also for any of these uh, treatment plans to be effect, uh, to provide a yearly update as well. So that's another way to kind of look at the, the uh, information as you were talking about. But it's specific okay, so to in that treatment. Terms, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. Mm -hmm. yeah. So in, in terms of the drugs and the men, so you know, once this process has taken place and the manufacturer supplies the drug, um, then of course there are costs that are that the patient or their insurance company would incur. Um, I, I'm wondering, does Medicare, Medicaid pick up those costs, or are there problems now when we get down to that level in terms of getting that covered? 
Yeah, so that's a, a good question. That's very relevant to patients, of course. How do we uh, have this paid? Mm -hmm. uh, that discussion, uh, again, FDA is not involved in the direct, in, in the direct right. cost mm -hmm. mechanisms of this. And of course, the Medicare, Medicaid, of course, would be CMMS, also the payers. This discussion uh, is uh, usually occurs at the treatment treatment physician or the treating physician's level as they reach out to the sponsors during the letter of authorization and that discussion, usually at that time those are discussed. And if there is a cost involved, that would be uh, assessed at that level. I personally don't have uh, privy to that assessment, but as you can imagine, FDA mm -hmm. does not uh, participate in the direct costs and, and reimbursement issues. Uh, it's uh, difficult to get, for me to give you an assessment of that, but I would suspect it happens as the, the treating physician is talking with the, uh, the manufacturer of the drug and, and also the insurance uh, companies with regards to that. And I think this is all across the field. If you're wanting an investigational mm -hmm. therapy and uh, the recovery of costs, and that's another topic in, in itself. So uh, how that's being handled uh, is you know usually with the discussions with the manufacturer and and of the and the provider of that inve investigational agent, and of course as you said, payers mm -hmm. and CMMS CMS is involved in this as well, so they may have a, a, a say or an input in this as well concurrently. Well, thank you very much. This has been extremely informative, and um, you know, you really laid this out well for us. Um, and I think, you know, for a rare disease, it's very important for patients to understand that some of these portals do exist. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, we always, we certainly encourage clinical trial participation because that's where we're going to get the answers we need to move this disease forward. But with one only one FDA-approved indication for drug, uh, we have a device that's been approved as well. Um, you know, oftentimes uh, patients uh, will go for a clinical trial, but you know, particularly the peritoneal patient population, which is so small, they, they tend to be locked out of a lot of the clinical trials where, you know, drugs are moving along and showing some efficacy in their counterpart of plural meso. So um, thank you. This has just been Absolutely. very helpful and gives us, you know, a lot of food for thought. Thank you. And, so, and, and before, I, mm -hmm. I think you just mentioned, I wanted to make a thought. You mentioned about rare diseases. Uh, as you know, cancer is becoming a precise decision-driven medicine with regards to mm -hmm. genomics. And we're moving away from tissue-driven therapies to also even particular mm -hmm. genomic alteration targeted therapies and things like that. So in essence, as you said, the concepts and the principles of this applies all across the field in rare diseases and also in, in, in uh, cancer mm -hmm. itself and to bring the appropriate patients to get the right medication to avoid the, the toxicity. So it's been a pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity to Thank highlight you. this program. We will continue to do our best to get these uh, available to our patients uh, as, as expeditiously as we can. And again, please feel free to reach out uh, to, to us uh, at the FDA if you have any questions or concerns. And I will share the website, uh, if I may, with you mm -hmm. and our community yes, and more than happy to, to uh, spread, um, spread the word or pass that around. Thank you so much. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you and stay safe and have a you good too. day. Thank, Thank you, you very Bye -bye. much. Take care. Bye.